here that can be found on the inside of your bulletin. This is Luke 9, 57 through 62. This is Jesus as he is heading toward Jerusalem as we continue our sermon series on Luke called Follow Me. As they were going along the road, go ahead and cut off this mic right here, guys, and let's just use the podium mic. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and uh, holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. Well, I was not here last week. Jeff Lee with Reform University Fellowship electrified you uh, with his message. I love getting those guys in who talk to our uh, college students uh, they have a way of engaging. So I don't know, I have not listened to that message. I don't know if he spoke about the New Year and New Year's commitments. But I'm sure as it's January 10th that you are all well along the way in uh, whatever commitments that you have made. I don't know if you know where the concept of New Year's commitments came from. It actually goes back a long way. Uh, the ancient Babylonians, you already know this of course, who at the end of each year would make a vow to God that they would return all objects they borrowed and pay off their debts to others. I'm sure that you guys have done that as well. But it was Julius Caesar who really uh, implemented the modern January New Year's commitments. He named January after the god Janus, remember the two-faced god who would look backwards and look forwards to the past and to the present. And it was a way of looking back upon and making amends for the past by sacrificing and making new commitments for the future. Well, the New Year's commitments have gone on and on and on. People make commitments. I don't know if you do or have given up on such silly concepts. My wife and I are in the process of doing some goal setting, and there's some of the regular natural ones that everyone make. Uh, going ahead and eating better, for instance. Uh, getting in better shape. Um, uh, carving a new Sistine uh, Chapel out of stone is one of mine. should take at least two to three months. Uh, and the list goes on and on. You know, the truth of the matter, though, is one of the reasons that people don't follow through with their commitments is that commitments cost. There is a cost to increasing uh, one's fitness. That means going to the gym. It means making decisions. Uh, pain uh, and price are related. And promise comes after price. Commitments cost. I want to spend more time with the Lord in prayer, but that requires making decisions to say no to other things. It's easy to make a commitment, but to follow through is another thing. The reality is we cannot have everything. There is a price to be paid for the promise. And it seems as Jesus is walking along the road here that he is talking about the cost of commitment. For there are people making commitments as Jesus walks along the road. 
And he is reminding them about the price that comes along with them. Jesus is talking about the cost of commitment. You know, we want both. We want Christianity and we want the world. Sometimes it seems as Christianity is all work and no reward. And we wonder if we really are experiencing the authentic life that Jesus talked about. I want to suggest to us that some of us have possibly settled for a counterfeit Christ. And the reason for that is our commitments. See, the purpose of this passage is to communicate to us that following Jesus is more than simply learning about him. It includes following him where he goes. As Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And regularly, God tests the earnestness of our hearts by bringing us to a fork in the road. When it becomes necessary to choose between two ways. Will I choose comfort or Christ? Custom or Christ? Convention or Christ? What Jesus is telling these people and telling us today to give up shows really how truly valuable that he is. And so ultimately, this message comes down to two words. Follow me. Jesus Christ and his gospel is worth giving up, are worth giving up everything for. Custom, comfort, commitment, and convention. So we must do so if we truly want to experience the risen Christ. Well, let's examine these three particular people that talk to Jesus and see what he demands so that we may understand the promise that is on the other side of price. The first seems to deal with comfort and security. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, there's a poignancy to this passage because in verse 51, this along the road where Jesus is walking we understand what this road is about. In verse 51, it says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem to head there. Jesus is determining to go to Jerusalem where he is to be killed. He communicates it clearly to his disciples. And as he goes through Samaria, which is right before he actually gets to this particular section, the Samaritans refuse to welcome him, to give him a place to stay, if you will, because he's setting his face toward Jerusalem. I find it very interesting as I look at Jesus' life that it seems that his entire life is bookended by having no place to lay his head. Think about Bethlehem. Is there a place for the Son of God to be born? No place at the inn. No place in Samaria as he walks toward his death, and certainly no place in Jerusalem where they refuse to recognize him. And he ends up being buried in a borrowed tomb. And so Jesus responds to this person who says, I will follow you wherever you go. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What Jesus is saying is it seems that everything has a home. Even the animals have a place to rest. A place of convenience and safety comfort, a place to operate from. And yet the Son of Man himself has no place to lay his head. 
Jesus has no home, if you will, on this earth. There is something about having a home, isn't there? Something about having the comfort of a place to belong, to come home to, to lay your head at night. I know if you ever go camping, but you know if you, once you arrive at your destination, the first place you, the first thing you do is to set up shelter, right? Because you don't know if a storm is going to come out of any, uh, nowhere, and you want to be protected from the elements. It is at the core, at the fundamental need of man. You know Abram Maslow, the psychologist, who broke everything down into a hierarchy of needs. At the bottom of it is shelter. What Jesus is saying is, listen, my friend, if you want to follow me, you need to understand that it will not lead to comfort. It will not lead to a place to lay your head. It will not lead to all of the things that you're thinking you are going to receive. You see, the alternative that Jesus is saying is follow me. Me meaning myself. Follow meaning my mission. The person wants Jesus, but he doesn't want Jesus' mission. Jesus is saying there is me and there is my mission. There is a person and there is a path. There is a sweetness and there is a suffering. And there is Jesus and there is Jerusalem. And you cannot separate them. Seems to me that sometimes I am like that. Jesus, I want you. I want me, but I don't necessarily want follow. But Jesus is saying they are inexorably intertwined. What Jesus, are you really saying is this, that if I follow you, that I have no home. The last thing I want you to do is to walk out of here and, and hear that I'm saying that there are wooden principles that are definite in your life if you follow Jesus. No, think more like Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler. Remember, the rich young ruler, give up everything you have. Zacchaeus, he doesn't say anything of the sort. Rather, Jesus is speaking to this particular person's heart. The person wants the comfort of Jesus, but he doesn't really want Jesus. He wants the fruit and not the fruit giver. So why should we follow Jesus if this is the equation? If we follow Jesus... And we may not necessarily get the most basic thing of all. Seems like a bad deal to me. But what Jesus is saying is if you follow me, far more than shelter and comfort, what you get is me. And I will be your home. And I will be your shelter. And I will be your comfort. I will be your place where there is nowhere else to turn. I will be your life in the midst of death, and I will be your resurrection in the midst of ruin. Jesus is audacious enough to say that even shelter itself is not as important as following me, because I am everything. Reminds me of a story of a missionary. His name was John Payton. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides, which is uh, this archipelago of islands off the coast of Australia. Uh, it's the nation of Vanatu right now. I know some of you are actually citizens of Vanatu, so you know what I'm talking about. This was over 100 years ago, and John Payton went 
to evangelize the savages of the New Hebrides, who are cannibals, by the way. And these cannibals are enraged in John Payton, and they decide to go looking for him to kill him. These are John Payton's words from his biography, autobiography. Being entirely at the mercy of these vacillating friends who said to run, who might give him up, I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I ran and I climbed into the tree and was left alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if were but of yesterday. And I heard the frequent yells of the savages. And yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all of my sorrows did my Lord draw near to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul alone, all alone in the midnight in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, you have a friend that will not fail you then. Foxes of the air have holes. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus says, follow me. For in me is all that you desire. I will be your life in the midst of death. We don't know what happened to this man, by the way, whether he followed him or not. I wonder about you and me. I wonder what we decide, whether to follow him or not. Jesus gives the same call to us as well. I confess I want comfort. I want safety. I want a home base of operations. And Jesus says, unless you give all, you cannot truly experience my life. Are you willing and ready to give everything that you might have everything? I wonder who is the richer person, the one who's fleeing from Syria for their life with nothing on their back, or you and me who lay our heads down on our comfortable pillows at night, safe in the arms of Jesus? Do we seek the life that the Syrian seeks? Jesus is in control of our circumstances, whether we like it or not. But he offers us something much richer than the comfort of simply a home. He offers us himself. Well, let's look at number two. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Notice the first one, Jesus says, follow me. Excuse me, the first one says, I will follow you, but this one says, follow me. Jesus is actually extending out to him the invitation. Come and experience me by following me. But, he said, let me first go and bury my father. Now, it's clear from the scripture that the father has died. Some commentators have said that the man is on his deathbed. But rather, Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. His father has already passed. 
So what does he mean? We need to understand that there is a mourning process in Jewish custom. That what would happen is the father would be buried and he would, uh, the body would decompose over the course of a year. And after a year, then the eldest son would go and would take the bones of the father, lay them with the mother in an ossuary, give honor to him, and that would be the finality of the process. It's an honorable custom, accepted. Indeed, it seems to line up very well with Scripture, right? One of the Ten Commandments, love, honor your father and your mother. And yet Jesus says, Let, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. If we put ourselves in the perspective of what Jesus is saying, it's utterly shocking. It would be the same, if you can imagine, going to the funeral visitation of a friend who had just lost his father and saying to him as you were going through the line of the visitation, you know, you really ought to let someone else take care of the burial of your father. You ought to be about the work of the kingdom. You ought not to be at that funeral tomorrow. Jesus is deliberately meaning to shake up this disciple. Remember, Jesus knows the hearts of these people. And what Jesus realizes is that what this man is doing is he's making following the scriptures an excuse. The Pharisees did this, by the way, right? They'd pull a scripture and would give them a justification for not doing what God called them to do. And Jesus said to them, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life. The scriptures testify about me, and yet you refuse to me to come to me to have life. Now, Jesus is not implying that his followers can never care for their family obligations. But when they do, they must be uh, out of obedience to Jesus, not instead of obedience to, Je uh, to Jesus. So in this case, Jesus was clearly not his highest commitment. And ultimately, what Jesus is saying to his disciple, this prospective disciple, is, I am more important than your father. If anyone comes to me, Jesus says, and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, parentheses, compared to following me, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is saying that you have a greater mission. I've called you to something greater to follow me, to proclaim me, me and my gospel. The king has come. A new kingdom has drawn near. And the message that I am giving you will not bring those who are physically dead to life. But you have the opportunity to go and bring the spiritually dead to life. Do not care for the physically dead who you cannot change when I'm commanding you to care for the spiritually dead. This shows us that Jesus Christ and his gospel have life itself embedded in them. Did not Jesus say, I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. My words, says Jesus, are spirit and life. 
and I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Go and proclaim the kingdom. Go and proclaim me. Jesus gives to this man and he gives to us the awesome privilege of not only experiencing him, but presenting him. For there is no distinction, says Romans, between the Jew and the Greek. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they, they to believe in the one of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? It is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, Jesus' message has an urgency to it. Go and proclaim the gospel. Experience me and proclaim me. You know, I think of this world and I think of the box that this world tries to put us in. And I think I can sum it up in this way. Here's what the world would very much like of Christianity and Christians. To be a Christian is to be a good person. Pay your taxes. Make sure your yard is mowed. Be a good citizen. Don't rock the boat. But Jesus is saying to be a Christian is to be radically oriented around Jesus Christ in a way, frankly, that is scandalous and revolutionary. Remember in Acts 17, when Paul and the disciples show up to Thessalonica and they're preaching the message and people are following them and a mob sets the city in an uproar and they said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. You go, man, and proclaim the kingdom of God. We can't be comfortable and safe. We can't be a nice commercial about Christianity when God calls us to be revolutionaries. He demands all. A new king, a new kingdom, a new kingship. And if we truly, if we truly follow Jesus Christ, we, much like Paul will say, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so we can no longer regard people according to the flesh. For we are Christ ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. This is what Jesus is saying to this man. We can't see people the same. We can't follow the same kingdom of the world. If we want to take up Jesus' message in his fullness, experience the road that he is calling us to travel on. You know, I have a New Year's resolution this year. It's an interesting one. It's simply this. Live like it's real. Live like it's all true. I intellectually know it's true. I can tell you all about the various aspects of the kingdom, the vicissitudes of inaugurated eschatology. But do I live like it's real? Do I see people like Christ sees them? Do I live by his kingdom and his values? That's what Jesus is saying in this message. 
and what he's saying to you and me. So we must leave our comfort if we want Christ. And we must leave our convention being well thought of, being good Christians, if it is keeping us from proclamation. So what of your convention is keeping you from the kingdom? Maybe it's in your neighborhood. I'm very polite. I keep my chickweed on my side of the yard. I make sure my shutters are painted. But I don't want to invade anyone else's space for fear of them thinking that something might be wrong with me. Maybe it's in your workplace. I want to fit in. I don't want to appear too different. I don't want to turn people off from Jesus Christ and Christianity. Jesus talks to us about to be wise in the way we act toward outsiders, to be salt and light. Don't get me wrong. He's not saying to leave your brain at the door, but to be sure in calling us to proclaim the kingdom. He's calling us to be revolutionaries. If Christ has gotten a hold of our life in such a way, should it not affect the way that we relate with people in relationships? So my challenge to you, just like it is for me, is to live like it's real. And what I value, and how I speak, and how I see, and how I love. I cannot be the same person and follow Christ. His call is too great. The opportunity and the price too great. This brings me to my final point. We've talked about comfort. We've talked about convention. I guess the final point is about commitment. There's a final person that says, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Seems like a fine thing to do. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, because you are biblical scholars, you know that there is a close, close relationship between this and a section in 1 Kings 19 where Elijah is called to go find Elisha, who is to be his disciple and follower, and to call him to follow him. And so Elisha comes along, Elijah, and there's Elisha plowing, and he throws his cloak on him, the symbol of saying, follow me. And Elisha says, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah says, go back again, for what have I done to you? In other words, translating, go ahead. And Elisha goes and does it. Now, Elijah is saying it's okay to do it. How do we know that? Because in 1 Kings 19.18, we see what the kiss symbolizes. This is the verse right before 19.19. The kiss is all of those, when he speaks of, that have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, it's a way of saying goodbye I'm leaving my life that I have with you to take up this new life. And so Elisha, when he gets the call, promptly goes and kisses his mother and father, then burns his plow, sets it on fire, puts the oxen, butchers them, creates a feast, gives all the food to the people, and leaves. 
But Jesus doesn't even allow this person to go and do that. What's the deal? Jesus is saying, I'm far more important than Elijah. One greater than Elijah is here. Now remember, I'm speaking about principles. Jesus knows this person's heart. Is Jesus saying when he calls you to go be a missionary, you don't get to go kiss your mother and father goodbye? No, he's not saying that. But he's saying no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What he's talking about is indecisive discipleship. So you can't serve Christ. You can't make Christ look great if you are always second-guessing the value of following him. Looking back means longing back. It means that you're not really sure if he's worth following, especially to Jerusalem. So when Jesus calls us, he calls us to be all in. Does that mean if we stumble and fall that we're out? The call is now. No, it doesn't mean that. We don't throw away the grace of God but we don't ignore the call of God. He wants everything from us. Jesus is extremely uncomfortable because he's everything we're looking for. I used to live in an agrarian society, that being called Weir's Cave, Virginia, when I was a young life leader. And there was fields all around me, and I remember a friend of mine telling me a story about one time when he screwed up plowing his fields. See, what you do is you pick a location on the other side of the field and you keep your eye tracked on it because it gives you a reference point. Well, he picked this white point on the other side of the field, thought it was like a cotton plant or something, and as he was driving, you know, every now and then he'd look around, he'd look back, and he'd orient to the white thing. Well, the problem was it was a paper bag and the wind was blowing it along. And by the time he got to the other side of his field, it was this long furrow that had gone this way. See, the beauty of Jesus Christ is he is the rock who never changes, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the one who is faithful to the end, the one who is the ancient of days, the one whose promises are true. And Jesus is saying, Orient yourself to me. Because all around us is sinking sand. But on Christ, the solid rock, you can stand. That when you orient yourself to the pillar of Jesus Christ, as you walk through life, you will discover again and again, as the winds whip around you, and as the streams rise, and as the storms come, that your house will stand because it's built on a firm foundation. Some of us are still fixed on that paper bag. We think we have Christ, but we've never really planted our pole in the ground. And our life is back and forth, back and forth, and it seems like there's no order to it at all. Not saying that Christianity is easy. Clearly, this passage doesn't communicate that. But I am saying it's right and it's true because He is right and true.
If your Christianity is miserable, make sure that it's because your conditions are miserable. But if you feel the peace of Christ as you sit in the tree, you know that you're all in. That's my hope for you. That's what Jesus is doing, and he has the graciousness to call us to a true discipleship. Call us at the front. Let us know what the cost is. So I guess that's what I'm praying for, hoping for, for us as a church. That we might take Christ up on his call. Follow me. To experience a deeper comfort than the comfort we have in the things of this world. To give up earthly convention may be our reputation that we might experience what it means to have the power of God work through us in such a way that people say, "Uh uh-oh, here they come again. Those people who turn the world upside down are showing up. And to experience the beauty of a foundation that never shifts. I do not know what what this year holds for you. I hope it'll be wonderful things. But my guess is there'll be some hard things too. But Jesus is our comfort. Jesus is our convention. Jesus is our commitment. So say goodbye to your old life in 2016. Burn the plow. Boil the oxen. Give your life away. Experience the joy of losing everything and gaining far more than you could ever hope or imagine. Christianity is not something to be learned about. It's someone to follow. All the way to death if necessary. For in death there is life and in complete commitment there is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you were gracious and kind enough to these people to let them know what it means to follow you. Lord, let us not delude ourselves and follow a counterfeit Christianity, a paper tiger. Lord, but rather let us give ourselves to one who is greater than our comfort. Let us give ourselves to a mission and a message that brings dead people to life. And let us not look back. Lord, let us be all in 2016. And let at the end of this year, people look upon us as a church and say, these people have turned the world upside down. We got to either join them or fear them. For they're all in. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.